Hello, and welcome along to this fourth episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. In this episode, I take a trip to Austria to visit Heineken's carbon neutral brewery. Whether it's biomass, whether it's solar panels, whether it's wind energy, doesn't matter as long as we go in the right direction. We speak to the new director of the Corporate Leaders Group, who gives us a great insight into the future of sustainable business. IT and the the Internet of Things, these are all going to play a huge role in how we change our economies in the future. And M&S's Director of Sustainable Business, Mike Barry, talks us through the retailer's new sustainability report and gives us his advice for the next generation of sustainability leaders. The single most important skill you need is leadership skills. It's putting an arm around the shoulder of the business say, Come on, we can be better, more successful if we do this. And once again, ED reporters Matt Mace and George Ogilby will be on hand to analyse the past week's big news stories and innovations. Okay, yes, so welcome along to this fourth episode. That first episode from ED Live now seems like an age away, and this podcast seems to be going from strength to strength. We've had hundreds of downloads of each of the first few episodes, and we're now being emailed requests to take part in future episodes, which is always a good sign. It's important to stress that this podcast is all about you, our ED readers, so please do give us your feedback on it. Perhaps you've got some thoughts about the interviews in the show or some ideas for potential topics, themes or interviewees for future podcasts. Email us at podcast at fav-house.com with your comments. So, I was away at the back end of last week and I've been catching up on a few things this week. So Matt and George, you've been on the, the news desk managing things. How are you both doing? Good week? Yeah. Yes, yeah, uh, not bad. It's been a busy, busy week. I think every, every kind of second we haven't spent on the news desk, we've been frantically searching for these apples that, that Heineken sent you and <laughs> mysteriously vanished. <laughs> they did send us. They're on the fourth floor kitchen here. But uh, yeah, yeah. So as I told the listeners last week, I was going to be taking a trip out to, to Austria to visit the, uh, the world's first carbon neutral brewery. Uh, and they did send us some apples, which was quite nice. But um, yeah, I was very kindly invited out there by the brewery's owner, Heineken, and it was actually it was nothing like what I was expecting. Um, I was expecting to turn up to a really industrial area with loads of factories everywhere and plumes of smoke in manufacturing processes. But actually, the entire area it was in a little village um, called Goss, about two hours from Vienna, um, and it was beautiful. It was it was trees, rivers, and not only did I get to visit the brewery there, I got to find out exactly how it was carbon neutral. And then later on in the day, we went on a little hike up the hills there um, that surrounded the village. And we got some amazing views of the, of the town. Um, and then we actually ended up rafting down the river back to the brewery. So, um, yes, it was a fantastic trip. And yes, we drink, did drink lots of um, Gossa beer. Um, so in terms of carbon neutral, you know, I mean, it's quite a big, it's yeah. quite a big phase, or is it just, just, you know, planting a few trees or is there more to it? The reason for me taking the trip. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, it was that side of it was fascinating as well. So the amount of sources and on-site solutions that they're using to generate their energy was fascinating. So their electric energy is 100% from hydropower sources. They've got then thermal energy. Some of it's coming from the, an on-site solar plant only sort of 3 or 5% of it, about 35% from biomass district heating system, which is in partnership with a neighbouring sawmill, 50% then generated in, in spent grain fermentation, which is itself a, a fascinating process. Um, essentially, it generates biogas or methane from the 18,000 tonnes of spent, gra- spent grain that they've got to heat their breweries boilers um, and the steam is also used generated and used for cleaning bottles 
90% of the standard beer bottles that they sell out in Austria are actually returned and reused. It's, yeah, it's amazing. The, the amount of processes and on-site solutions that they have there are endless. And it's, I suppose for me, what was the story to be told there was how a traditional manufacturing plant, which has got 150-odd years of heritage as a, as a brewery, has been completely transformed in the name of sustainable business, which is a really inspiring story. But to tell that story, I actually went out there with the, the video equipment and shot a, shot a video about the entire trip, which will be going live on ED next week. So stay tuned for that one. Anyway, to give you a flavour of that video, I've extracted um, one of the interviews I conducted with members of the Heineken sustainability team during that trip for us to listen to here. So as a first stop on this podcast, here's a recorded interview from that carbon neutral brewery in Austria. And this is with Heineken's Director of Global Sustainable Development, Michael Dickstein. Have a listen. Uh, thank you very much, first of all, for inviting us along to, to the brewery. Well, thanks for being here. Um, how do you find it, first of all? It must be quite rewarding to, to walk around a site like this and see your kind of Brewing a Better World strategy in action. Well, actually, who would have thought? I mean, 10 years ago, when Andrea started out with his uh, strategy and with his journey, um, that, that now, uh, 10 years later, we, will, we have a brewery that is completely fossil fuel, that is for 100% uh, carbon neutral, and a role model for the entire Heineken organization around the world. And um, being the world's first major carbon neutral brewery, mm-hmm. what's this site taught you about what's possible for breweries across the world? Well, it first of all, is telling me that uh, you need to seize opportunities. I mean, obviously, we do not have a sawmill everywhere uh, adjacent to our breweries uh, around the world. Uh, but uh, it is looking at the opportunities in a very um, outside-the-box uh, way of thinking uh, and making sure that uh, we understand what the opportunities are uh, in the locations where we brew our beer uh, and make sure that we grasp those opportunities, whether it's biomass, whether it's solar panels, whether it's wind energy. doesn't matter as long as we go in the right direction. And as you mentioned, there's lots of different technologies, particularly on this one site. There's so many different technologies here. Um, how do you weigh up the advantages or disadvantages of each sustainability solution and, and why do you choose sort of generating that energy as opposed to just, for example, buying, buying your own energy? I think, first of all, the lesson is you need to have a sound energy mix. It isn't possible to work uh, entirely with solar panels or with biomass. You always need to have a mix of energy sources and then preferably sustainable and renewable energy sources uh, in order to get where you want to get. Uh, And I think that's the biggest uh, uh, reason um, or the biggest conclusion for us. What is um, important is that we are authentic, that we take the role um, uh, leading uh, certain solutions. Uh, buying certificates is something that you will never be able to exclude entirely in order to close the loop. Uh, but you need to be authentic and you can only be credible when you set our own initiatives. Okay. And um, I have with me actually Heineken's sustainability report. I was having a read on the way up. Um, and obviously that all of the sustainability strategy falls under that Brewing a Better World um, slogan. Um, within that, you've got a commitment for a 40% reduction in emissions by 2020. How close are you to reaching that target now? And, and what do you really think will hold the key to, to get into that eventual goal? 
I think we have made major progress in the last couple of years to achieve our target of reducing 40% uh, CO2 emissions uh, in production. Uh, we are actually uh, one year ahead of uh, where we set our own targets. Uh, so um, I'm very confident that we will be able to, uh, to meet the target by 2020. Uh, and uh, we are uh, now together in working groups and identifying new opportunities we have already started thinking about uh, the world beyond 2020. Do you foresee a time when Heineken as a company is carbon neutral or perhaps even carbon positive? I think this is a very realistic scenario that is already in place in a couple of our markets. Our Dutch colleagues uh, have uh, committed uh, publicly uh, to uh, the ambition of uh, becoming 100% uh, carbon neutral. Our colleagues in Mexico have said that they uh, will go for two-thirds of uh, carbon uh, neutral in all their operations. And, and mind you, uh, those uh, both the Dutch and the Mexican operations are amongst the biggest that we have uh, in the world. We have soon in our brewery in Masafra, Italy, 13,000 solar panels, which means that this will be the largest number of solar panels on any brewery in the world. So yes, I do believe that we can make many, many more steps. And to get to that point, there will obviously be some key enablers um, that will make that transition perhaps a bit easier um, for Heineken and for other companies that are looking to progress their sustainability strategies. Um, think of green policy frameworks and perhaps collaboration across industry, those sort of things. What one thing would you like to see that could perhaps accelerate the process for companies like Heineken when it comes to becoming much more sustainable, greener businesses? I, absolutely, as you are addressing, uh, the policy framework uh, is absolutely key in order to achieve what you want to achieve. Policy frameworks, but also setting the right level of incentives. What we are dealing with are very new, very innovative solutions. There is a certain business risk and an element of risk related to that, uh, and having the public hand as a partner for that uh, would facilitate those solutions. I'm thinking of the cooperation that we are doing uh, currently with the United Nations. Uh, UNIDO is the United Nations Industrial Development Organization. One of the pillars of our partnership is related to renewable energy uh, in Africa. Uh, the biggest uh, issue there being the reliability of local grids and if we have the public hand as a partner uh, in order to resolve such issues then we will be able to accelerate further. Perfect. And um, just finally then, uh, for other companies or perhaps sustainability directors and professionals out there that might want to go on a similar journey to what Heineken is, has been on over the past few years, looking back based on your experience, what, what key advice or key steps would you think uh, are really necessary for other sustainability professionals along their sustainability journey. I would say, first of all, my advice is be authentic. Uh, look very carefully uh, to the nature of your business. Stay in close contact with your stakeholders. Listen to them. Listen carefully what they expect from you on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, match it with the impact that you as a business are making uh, in order to understand where you can really uh, make progress. Second, never lose uh, the sight of what is really important when you're working for a business. The business interest uh, is uh, the first and foremost. So whatever we are doing here uh, supports directly or indirectly the business. Now obviously this is entailing a very broad range of sustainability targets and ambitions that we have. Why? 
because we are an active part of societies. We are embedded in the communities that we are operating with. So therefore, we can only achieve a sustainable business in the long run when working together with the communities and taking into consideration uh, interests from those communities as well. Some great insight there from Michael Dickstein and a great, great project from Heineken, I'm, I'm sure you'll agree. Stay tuned for that exclusive video from that trip next week on ED. But here for the next stop on the podcast, Matt, let's go to you. How are you? You're looking forward to your, your day off tomorrow? Yeah, the, um, the early weekend is, is very much something I've been, I, think, I wouldn't want to say I'm counting down the hours, that'd be, that'd be unprofessional for me, and of course I'm, I'm not. But um, yeah, we've got a nice little trip off to, to Prague planned, so very nice. much looking forward to it. Very nice. Um, anyway, what, what do you have for us this week then? So, um, earlier on this week, I interviewed Jude Duggan, who has just been named as the new director of the Corporate Leaders Group. Ah, yes, okay. Um, she has been working with CISL, which is kind of the secretariat for the EU Green Growth Programmes. Mm-hmm. And so, and also she's previously worked at DEFRA and DEC as well. So it's someone who can bridge that divide between policy and business. Okay. And so she, she worked at DEC and DEFRA? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. And um, to have two sides of that coin mm-hmm. and her to be able to take a position where they're working with the Unilevers, um, the Interfaces, the Philips of the world who are driving this. It, it led for a very interesting interview and a very exciting insight into the future of, okay. of uh, business. This was on the phone? This was over the phone, okay. yes, um, which um, will no doubt be <laughs> evidence through my um and ah in throughout <laughs> the interviews. But yeah, so um, basically I thought it would just be nice to, to see what she wants to bring, um, bring to the table in a new role. And here's what she said. Well, um, I'm really delighted, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um very pleased. I've um, had the privilege of, um, I used to be a civil servant and I've certainly, um, the CLG have been very supportive of UK government action on uh, climate policy in the past, which has been enormously useful, so I've experienced them from that side of the desk. Um, I used to be the policy director for um, Zeus and Babcock and a member of the CLG working group from that perspective, so I've seen what they can do, um, and I've got a good experience of yeah, you know what they can do, what they do well from that point of view. So I think um, my experience, uh, and, and I've worked at the European Commission as well. So um, my experience um, has all led me to have a great admiration for the group. So I think that's why it's a real privilege to, to take on the leadership. And then I think this particular timing. Um, Post-Paris, I think over the last couple of years, business has really taken a great leap forward. Business in, in Europe, I think, uh, or progressive business in Europe, has taken a great leap forward in their thinking on decarbonisation and how to build businesses in a low or zero carbon economy. And I think that actually in many ways they're very much ahead of the game now. They're ahead of policymakers. And there's a lot of case studies, learning and experience that um, business can give to policymakers and politicians who are making decisions on um, targets and policy, particularly post-Paris, um, that's really helpful in building ambition. And I think you know, that's why I think it's a, it's a very um, interesting time. Um, I think it's also post-Paris, it's a time where other countries are kind of embarking on this process of implementing the policies that will bring them to their their Paris pledges, to their NDCs. Um, So 
that, again, that experience from companies that have been at the forefront of this for some time have learned this, and sometimes the hard way, and have often learned that things are much easier than they anticipated and much more beneficial than they anticipated. So I think, again, there's a real opportunity there. Um, and obviously the role is a bit broader than that. The um, CISL uh, provides a secretariat for the Green Growth Platform in Europe and, and working with the Pacific Alliance. So I think there's lots of opportunities post-Paris to you know, share, share the learning, really, and the, the tough learning and the good learning. Uh, more broadly, to help others leapfrog some of the, the difficulties that we might have encountered in Europe and also to give them confidence. And, um, I mean, you mentioned um, businesses have been able to take a, a huge leap forward, forward since Paris, and obviously CLG, um, some of the members are, are probably, you know, they're considered the game changers and, and the leaders in this kind of industry. You've got, you've got your BTs, your Unilevers, your interfaces, who have all kind of um, unveiled innovative models. BT have got their three-to-one ambition. Unilever's mm. got their, you know, carbon-positive um, thing. Um, what kind of, as CLG, what kind of um, learnings, advice, expertise are you, are you hoping to introduce? And what kind of models and even new business models and aspects that you're going to be focusing on that you think will really allow these companies to, to strive and build upon the platform that Paris and like the S SDGs have built? I, th I think Paris, I mean, I don't think their, their success is a result of Paris. I think Paris is also a result of their success, if you see what I mean, because it's that bottom-up learning that many of those companies have provided has helped build that ambition. I think somebody said... Uh, that one of the reasons that Paris was such a success was that governments and businesses had a much better idea of how to do what they needed to do, and that helped build their ambition for Paris. Um, I think, I don't know whether you've seen our business compendium, where there's a whole load of case studies from members of the CLG about particular things that they have done. They set out uh, the various actual practical examples of things that corporate leaders group members have done um, that have helped reduce their emissions. I mean, there's, and because it's cross-sectoral, I think it's fair to say that we don't we don't focus on specific business models, but a whole range of creative thinking, thinking differently, to to ensure that businesses are successful in a low-carbon economy. So we're not promoting any one business model, but we are saying that kind of look at the experience of others, think about what your business does, think about what 2050 looks like and what, what, what will the needs be then and how do you get there. And there's a wealth of experience and expertise now building up that can help achieve that transition. Okay, and um, in terms of, um, you know, we, we've kind of gone through um, Paris has, has provided the platform for, for other businesses to perhaps um, look at look at the kind of members and think, okay, this is this is something we can really drive um, towards. Um, in your in your opinion, is there is there still an example perhaps some some resistance or friction towards you know adapting and changing the way companies do business, and also what kind of barriers uh, are in place for business to overcome if they are to to look towards this kind of low carbon future? Well, I, I think the barriers depend to a certain extent on sectors, but I, I, I think we can recognise that IT and the, the Internet of Things, these are all going to play a huge role in how we change our economies in the future. Um, some of the barriers will be about infrastructure and, and needs, so I guess, you know, let, let's think more broadly, but if you, if you have um, driverless cars or electric driverless cars and you've got no 
no internet signal, what happens then? These are questions that need to be raised and governments need to address in order to allow that progress. And the way I think there's been this huge leap forward over the last year or so, particularly in Europe, um, has been, I think, business started off with this problem and there were leaders who said, this is something that we need to do and we're going to do it. But they were also starting from a position of, this might be this might be difficult and we don't know what the impact will be on my business, so then this is something that we need to do, so it's a sort of compliance mentality, leading to a much more creative approach to, okay, what is the future look like? What, what are the things that we can do that will help get us to the future? A recognition, somebody yesterday said to me, cutting CO2 is cutting costs. And I think a lot of businesses have discovered that and that, that was not what they were necessarily expecting to discover say 10 15 years ago so i think in europe there's a, a great recognition of that i think in other parts of the world some of these companies are still at that nervous stage of thinking this is a constraint on my growth that will be difficult and how will i manage it and and i think the cutting co2 cuts costs is a very important message but also if you look at how to make your business a, a zero emissions business, it can unleash a huge amount of creativity, new business models, new markets, new ways of thinking, new productivity, new motivation. But I think those who engage with the debate sooner rather than later um, do get the benefit from. Okay, and obviously um, the other the other role you kind of um, taken up right now um, is at CISL, um, which you previously mentioned is kind of the secretariat for the EU green growth platforms. And um, yeah. obviously, um, uh, you have previously worked at both um, at both DEC and DEFRA, so you're kind of one of one of the few people that can kind of you know view view this uh, green policy and green credentials from both sides both sides of the coin where there's perhaps still a bit of a gap between you know business drivers and um, policy regulation so um, in your opinion you know how how is the current policy landscape shaping up to, to enable businesses um, to drive this I mean we we covered a report from um, the REA just yesterday saying that, um, you know um, investors are in for like a turbulent time because the confidence is perhaps quite there. Just wondering what your take on that would be. I haven't seen the report, so I, I can't comment on that. And I think there's also obviously lots of other things in play. But I think um, I, if you look at the history of policy, it's quite natural when you're trying to, to do something new that there will be missteps along the way, there will be unintended consequences. And I think if you look... Yeah, that Europe has led the way in starting these policies, but also addressing some of those um, missteps and, and trying to correct them. I think one of the things that we have learned, or there's lots of things that we've learned, but actually I think one of the most important things is actually fostering this kind of creative thinking in companies that will think about the industries, the businesses of the future, rather than thinking about decarbonizing the businesses we have today. So it's helping them evolve into those new businesses rather than looking at what we have now and how, how we deal with that. So I think that's a, a sort of fundamental shift in attitude that, that we need policymakers to kind of foster now. And there's a lot of opportunity over the next year to do that. There's a lot of, you know, there's the reform of the ETS, there's the effort sharing um, directive in Europe, there's various, various things that can happen. <coughs> Um, in domestic policy as well in the UK to, to help um, help bring those who perhaps haven't been at the forefront. So, you know, the corporate leaders group of all companies who've been looking to 
maximise the opportunities who've been committed to to um, taking action. Um, there are those perhaps who this hasn't been at the forefront of their minds before and who now need the right sort of policies in place to help them um, move into this phase. Nobody wants to end up as a, a, a Kodak, really. They want to they want to be one of the companies that survives and thrives. And I think that's where policymakers need to think about um, what can help do that. And as I said, we're cross-sectoral, so I'm not going to pick on any one particular policy um, because that will vary across those sectors. But it is about a step back and about a joined upness across government and government departments to, to look at sort of holistic systemic change rather than piecemeal change. And um, you mentioned you mentioned um, ETS just briefly there and, and the potential reforms. Obviously, that was that's something that you um, you're probably quite well versed in, uh, being you know you were head of uh, international missions trading at, at DEFRA um, for for a while. And in in terms of that kind of reform and in, and the concept of a carbon price in general, I know it's a it's something that a lot of businesses are starting to adopt internally. Um, Christina Figueres at at the actual COP21 talks said. You know, at some point, this will be one of the big policy changes that will that will drive it. Um, what do you think businesses can kind of just take the lead in this anyway? And that internal internal carbon prices will do what it did to Paris and kind of bring this change around because of what they've done, rather than this change being enforced on them before they can get a chance to adapt to it. I, th- I think there is. I think that you know, cutting CO2 cut costs. I think that you will get from company after company after company, and it wasn't what they expected. So I think there are good reasons for companies to look at the way they do their internal accounting to see if there are ways that they can drive down their costs, improve their productivity, increase their efficiency. And I know other companies. I did a report uh, last year for the um, for CISL, which was um, ten years of the ETS, and there was a company quoted in there, Itel Cement who use CO2 as a metric for efficiency globally. Again, I don't think that would have happened 15, 20 years ago. There wouldn't have been many companies thinking of doing that. And so we need to remember how far we've come and how much we've learned. And we've learned that looking at carbon in our companies is a very good way of judging how efficient we are. Okay, and um, obviously it's, it's the European trading scheme. It's, it's something, um, and you know, it's something that happens European-wide. The whole, the whole debate going on between between ministers right now around the UK seems to be this kind of looming issue of Brexit. Is it is it going to drive um, this economic you know, this economic windfall for the UK, um, or is it going to kind of be a leap into the dark? I, I believe some ministers have described it as. Um, I mean, do you do you have a policy? on Brexit like can you can you see um, no we don't you don't see or do you don't end up, okay <laughs> no no, <laughs> no. But, um so in terms in terms of if if Brexit happened um could you see again would it be something that businesses would again kind of adapt to quickly and and lead the way on I, I think I mean you know you've heard all the data as much as I have so I don't think I can be drawn on that but what we know is that there's going to be great uncertainty Okay. And um, just going back to kind of um, more towards the business scope of things, um, we recently ran an article, um, I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware about the kind of um, the clean energy ministerial that's been happening in San Francisco late last week. Basically, um, a load of like global leaders from 23 countries and the European Commission were there. They've launched yeah. these like seven huge kind of business initiatives, so um, getting a thousand companies to sign up to 100% renewable energy commitments, um, mm. LED lighting rollouts. 
it's this whole kind of um, ethics around collaboration. And um, I actually, um, I think it was um, two days ago, I spoke to Gabrielle um, Garner from BT, and one of the things that stood out in my interview with her was just saying, going forward, she wants the IT sector to collaborate with the construction and the transport sectors. And, you know, it's this whole issue that's coming forward is collaboration will be will be the only way to do it. And obviously, CLG, that's what you're doing. You're promoting collaboration. Yeah. You've got so many members. Is that mm. the one key issue to drive sustainability? Is is this holistic change possible without companies and sectors, like you said, working together? I, I think working together and open-mindedness, actually. I think it's, it's, it's thinking about new ways of doing things, new ways of, you know, what, what, what is it that we need to do? I think... Um, and I think I've heard the quote before that, you know, innovation doesn't happen in your own sector. It happens, it, it happens in other sectors. It happens through new entrants into sectors. So actually what that means for companies is that they need to think about how do we, how do we collaborate or cooperate with others to do something completely differently and to really change our mindset about what it is we're delivering, who we're delivering it to, and how we're delivering it. And I think, obviously, one of the things that's happened, particularly this century, is the, the, the potential of IT to, to help solve an awful lot of these problems by making it much more targeted, much more specific, you know, to, you know whether it's turning off your heating when you're not at home to, to, because you, you can program it from a distance, or, or how industry can use IT to actually make themselves more efficient. I think it does require this new thinking, and I think that will come from cross-sectoral collaboration. Okay, so very interesting. So both Michael from Heineken and Jill from the Corporate Leaders Group really reiterating the need for greater collaboration on sustainability and the need to really continue driving leadership on sustainability within all organisations. Which brings us nicely onto the third and final interview on this week's show, and it's a big one. On Thursday morning, we received Marks & Spencer's Plan A Sustainability Report, which, as you'd probably guess, is a great read. Um, I won't go into full detail about all of the targets and achievements within that report. We have covered it on the ED website, so just run a search for Plan A on ED if you want to read the full thing. But we thought this would provide us with an opportunity to have a chat with Mike Barry, MS's Director of Sustainable Business, who really needs no introduction. I'm sure all of the listeners to this podcast are aware of Mike and the great work he's done on driving the Plan A strategy forward. So this is another phone interview that we conducted with Mike and actually one particular highlight of this conversation for me came before we even started the interview and before I told Mike that we'd be including our conversation on the podcast because it it turns out Mike's a big fan. Here's what he had to say. I enjoyed the podcast. I enjoyed listening to that. So a stamp of approval there from from Mike Barry. You might have to download that one and play it every week on the intro. Um, anyway, I proceeded to have a chat with Mike about the big successes and challenges highlighted by this latest Plan A update. And then we also discussed some broader issues ranging from green policy and Brexit um, through to his key pieces of advice for sustainability professionals. And that in itself is, is worth listening out for at the end. Here's that conversation with Mike Barry in full. We're speaking on the morning then of the, the launch of MS's 2016 Plan A report, um, sent over to the UD News desk, bang on nine o'clock uh, on the dot this morning. Um, it's another great read, I must say. You won our Sustainability Reporting Award at the Sustainability Leaders Awards last year, and you can really see why, why with this one. Um, it's really easily set out, very easy to find your way through it, um, good mix of text and tables, infographics, images, and it's only 48 pages, which for a company as big as M&S, it's a, a good achievement. Um, 
So, uh, I wanted to really start on um, a few of the big highlights. Um, 57 of the 104 Plan A commitments have now been achieved. Um, nearly three quarters of M&S products have an eco or ethical quality and there's been notable progress on improving UK store and, and warehouse energy and water efficiency. So for you, Mike, um, what part of this report are you most proud of? What's the greatest achievement on that list? Well, let, let me just pick out three things for me, and I'm going to look at this very strategically. I'm not going to go down into the detail of individual commitments at this stage, but three things stand out. What is continuity? So Plan A was invented or driven by uh, Lord Stuart Rose back in 2006-07. That's where we, where we first emerged with it. Mark Bolland took it on very clearly from Stuart, and now Steve Rose stepped up to the new chief executive of M&S of being unequivocal in his support for, for Plan A and his desire to push it even further in the future. So the first test for me of, of, of any business is when the chief exec changes, does he or she, the successor, drive it as hard as their, their predecessor? And I think we've, we've clearly ticked that box. The second thing that we're always looking for with Plan A is the world never stands still. There's new trends, there's new issues that emerge, and the big one for us in the last um, 12 months has been human rights. I think M&S has always been very good at managing social compliance, stopping bad things from happening in supply chains that involve thousands of factories and farms and probably two million people participating in that supply chain. What we did, we looked at ourselves in the mirror this year and said, you know, is it enough that M&S is managing a risk there? Should we be more ambitious? And I think we've said unequivocally that we need to not just stop bad things from happening, but we need to promote human rights and help people reach their potential. Two million people in the supply chain, 83,000 of us here at M&S, 32 million customers as well. So the first human rights report has come out alongside this Plan A report, laying out very clearly what we stand for and where we're going. And that's underpinned by a new innovation in terms of a transparency map, showing where the clothing and food factories are that we use. Um, so that's all in the public domain. So that's been very, very important to me as well. And within that new trend as well, I think we've also seen an important trend towards localization. People are concerned about what's happening in their community. What are you, Marks and Spencer, doing to tackle unemployment in my community, uh, to help volunteer in my community, to fundraise in my community? On its own, it might look a little bit like old-fashioned CSR or philanthropy. It's not. It's a very sophisticated approach to link every Marks and Spencer store with its local community it serves. We've got a great platform in Neighbourly that's helping us distribute um, surplus food at the end of the day mm. to local food banks, and Neighbourly will only grow with it in the future. Mm. So that's, that's, the, that's the innovation bit. And then the third area I'm, I'm very strategically interested in at the moment is, is partnerships. So, you know, metaphorically, M&S, any big business can probably become 25%, 30% more sustainable on its own. To truly become sustainable, you have to work in partnerships with others. We've worked very, very hard within the Consumer Goods Forum, bringing together the world's biggest food and drink, consumer goods companies, the Nestle's, the Unilever's, Walmart's, Tesco's, and bring them together, very com big competitors, to work together on sustainability. Deforestation, uh, look-on refrigeration, um, tackling forced labor. And again, we've got the world's uh, biggest companies working together to drive change as well systemically. So they're the big three from me. Interesting. Um and so then just, I mean, broadening that all out, broadening that all out and, and looking at the bigger picture for one moment, you've stated in the, in the report or in the release that 2015 was a, a really important year for green business um, with the success in Paris and the launch of the, the new SDGs all coming within that past year. Um, six months on or so now from, from Paris, how big an impact do you see these global frameworks having on, on businesses like M&S and on sustainability and sustainable business as a whole? Great question. I think... 
2015 was literally a tipping year when we went from lots of individual self-started, self-motivated businesses coming up with their own plans, but not, not all pointing in the same direction. I think COP21 and the SDGs has given us a direction of travel that's shared by all. So we've got those 17 SDGs that, that paint a, a picture of where we need to get to. And I think we're now stepping out of the old world of make your business model less bad, 25% less of this and 10% less, less of that, into this world where we're really looking at the essence of the purpose of business, the role it has in servicing society around the world, and delivering not just less than outcomes, but positive outcomes as well. I talked about human rights, for example, at M&S, not just about avoiding bad things in front of factories, but using businesses' ingenuity, innovation capacity, and scale capacity to drive human, better human outcomes, better planetary outcomes as well. And I think with COP21, with the SDGs, we're going to propel further and faster into that, that world than any of us quite realize. And again, we use the probably overused example of, of Tesla disrupting the um, car, car industry. I think over the next five to ten years, there'll be dramatic um, disruption of the established ways of doing business. And what you'll end up with is business models emerging that are fundamentally about the customer and serving customer needs. But in delivering that, deliver great outcomes for people and plants at the same time. And if you as a business are not preparing for that, the skills, the capacities, the networks, the partnerships, to enable you to transition to that world, you will probably fail in the next decade. Mm. And, and, and just um, sticking with that kind of thought about the customer and what they want or need, um, as we mentioned earlier in this report, there's 73% of all M&S products now have that eco or ethical quality embedded within them, up from 64% last year, so a nice big jump. Do you see that sort of particular target um, eventually having an effect on, on sales? And what I mean by that is do these eco or ethical products perhaps sell better? Is there a consumer pull for those sort of products over their counterparts because of their sustainability credentials? Or is this still sort of, are we still at a place where that's not factored into purchasing decisions yet? And, and, and this is, this is the, the $64,000 question. When we sit down with our 32 million customers, they're telling us unequivocally they are concerned about the future. They expect big business, big government to be sorting out social environmental issues on their behalf. 90% of the heavy lifting has to be done by us. Factories, fridges, farms around the world, palm oil, soy, all these things behind the scenes, we expect you to sort out Marks and Spencer. It's one of the reasons that we shop with you is what your brand stands for. Make sure you do it. But there's 10% where you can start to draw me into the journey. You can start to engage me on simple things to do with recycling clothing, shopping being an example, recycling packaging, washing at low temperatures, volunteering in my community. Right through to our new Sparks card where 4 million M&S customers every time they shop with us, they make a donation to charity just by shopping with us. So what we're trying to do is make sure that 10% is simple, it's easy, it's relevant. Once you've been through that confidence-building stage, you can start a bigger conversation with people about what makes products different. Now, M&S sells tens of thousands of different individual product lines. You can't label every single one with six or seven different social environmental stories. They're, they're like madness for all. So what you've got to do is tread this, this tightrope between a brand promise that every product in the Marks and Spencer store, we aspire to be a good product, and here are some incredibly super-duper products that go above and beyond and have a huge degree of sustainability innovation packed into them. We've done the world's most sustainable suit, the world's most sustainable bra that really brings to life every type of innovation. But our customers have been very clear with us, do not make this a niche in the corner of the store or the website, M&S, the ethical corner, and over here is everything else. M&S 
products, every single one of them for every factory and farm that you present to me has got to be a better product as well. Mm. Um, and that may well induce the, the answer to the next question I was going to ask, which is around kind of, um, we've talked about the sort of biggest successes for you within this Plan A report at the moment. What's the, what are the biggest sustainability challenges for M&S at the moment? Yeah. So, so again, I, I think at a macro level, the issue of scale and pace. Mm. We need to move ever faster, and I don't just, just speak as M&S, I think every single business in the world needs to move faster. We've underestimated the pace of environmental disruption, the resource crisis that we face in the world's oceans full of plastics. We've underestimated the social challenge that we face in terms of making sure that people feel that business is committed to equality, to sharing, to well-being. And I think we're underestimating the pace of technology disruption as well, the, the advent of 3D printing, driverless cars, drones, artificial intelligence, robotics, all of which that can have a positive impact on the sustainable future, but done badly could have a negative impact as well. So all of us have underestimated just how fast we need to change and how much we have to deliver um, coming up. And I think critically within that then, we've also underestimated how much more customer-centric this needs to become. It is not enough just to become 25% less impactful behind the scenes, working with a few of the business and stakeholders. Purpose, social and environmental, has to become front of mind for what your brand stands for going forward. And that's what MS is committed to do with Plan A. Plan A has been a long apprenticeship, nine years of hard work. But what we see is it's just keying us up to participate in the marketplace in a different way in the future. Mm. And if we don't do it, somebody else will. Yeah, interesting. And, and, and so within this Plan A report, um, you've quite neatly set, it, set out the, the progress on every one of those targets with that kind of, a, you've got quite a few pages there with those bar charts that quite easily show it. Um, the vast majority on that plan are either on plan or achieved. Um, only a few areas that I noticed that were listed as not achieved, and one of them I just wanted to ask about in terms of what you're doing and how you're taking it forward is that of um, customer clothes recycling. Um, yeah. So through your shopping initiative, you donated, I think, 2.7 million tonnes last year, which actually is a huge amount, we can't forget, but um, you've obviously got that 2020 target of 50 million garments, and you're on about 24 million now. Um, the report states you're sort of currently struggling um, in, in that area to sort of get it up to the required level. And obviously with fashion waste being such a huge issue um, globally, how are you looking to, to address that and get that figure back up? Yeah, it's, it, it's a great question. I think swapping is absolutely integral to, to, to Plan A and it's, it's one of those that issues that keeps me awake at night. How do we make sure we deliver what we said we would do? I, I think there's probably a couple of things going on. One is that we've just got to execute it better in our shops and our websites, and we've just launched a new campaign with Joanna Lumley to encourage people to think twice about throwing away clothing or allowing clothing just to accumulate in their wardrobes, which is often the problem. People just don't think about what's accumulating in there. You know, there is a little bit of me says that M&S has achieved more than virtually any other clothing retail in the world. We're getting here. We set we set a ball to target. You know, we're stretching ourselves to get there. Um, and this new this new program will help us do that. But I think that the, the second part of it, and it goes back to what I was saying a little bit earlier about working in partnership with others, we have to normalise the concept of circular thinking and consumption generally across the high street and across the marketplace. If, only, if all you ever do is come to Marks and Spencer, it's the only place that you stop and think about what happens to your clothing. It probably won't get ingrained in your, in your mind. And let me use one small, small example, carry bag charging, which was a big preoccupation in the UK over the last few years. M&S went out early, back 2008, and introduced charging its, its, its food halls 
voluntarily, five feet charged that no one else did, drove down, carried back nutrition off uh, our food halls by 80%. Fantastic. Legislation has been introduced in, in, in the rest of the UK now that forces the whole marketplace to do it. We expected when it came in, it would have no difference to us whatsoever. It comes in, and there's another fall in carry bag usage from the already very low usage in the M&S family to an even lower figure, because people are now stopping to think about carry bag usage on every shop that they walk past on the, on the high street. The same will happen with clothing. As steadily, and it's starting to happen, other retailers introduce the model. It becomes normalized in the marketplace, and M&S might do it with greater scale and greater authority than others, but the fact that everybody's asking you to recycle your clothing helps you drive onto another level as well. So half of it's internal. We've got to be better at what we do. Half of it's about the marketplace changing with us. Interesting. Um, okay, and so just very quickly then ending our, our chat this morning, I, I wanted to just broaden out and look a bit more um, wider at the current green business landscape here in the UK. Um, first of all, um, a quick look at the, the, the current green policy landscape and how it's impacting or impacted the retail space. Obviously, majority of the, the policy-related stories we seem to be writing on ED at the moment seem to be EU referendum-focused, but just domestically, uh, there have been a raft of, of changes from the Conservative government over the past year. don't have time to go over them all, but how do you see the, the current state of play there? Is there anything you'd like to see changed or not changed or improved? I, I think the most important thing we can do here is take a step back because we, we, we end up fighting about individual policy changes, some of which are, have got significant implications both in terms of money spent but impact on, on the sustainability of the nation. But before you do that, you need to take a step back and look at each sector. You need to look at retail, you, look at, you need to look at mobility, you need to look at pharmaceuticals, banks, airlines, the whole, whole caboodle. And you need to say, what are the 10 levers that we can pull to get us from the bad old place, the unsustainable economy, to a sustainable economy, one that's low carbon, that's equal, that's fair, that's circular, that's restorative. And of those 10 levers, which are the ones best pulled by government? And let's say there's 10 levers, and let's say there are three best pulled by government and seven are best done by the marketplace. Of those three government ones, which are the ones that are best done by government in terms of taxation or public information or R&D to the marketplace or subsidy to get, help us get to where we need to get to? And if I've got one challenge, not just to government, but to us as business leaders here, is how we collaborate and work better together to understand where very limited government money and time, let's be clear about that, can best be applied. And I think what we've probably got now is, and this is not just a UK story, this is a global challenge, we've got a mishmash of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And there's reasons that policies chop and change is that because we can't, not absolutely clear why they've been introduced, and we can't all sign up to a long-term vision, 5, 10, 15 years, to say, stick with this because it's taking us to the natural end point. People just get to the end of a funding cycle and say, now what, in, in some, something of a panic. Mm. So I'm very clear. I don't throw bricks around in the glass house accusing government of X and uh, business of Y. Mm. I think we just need a different approach to thinking through policy, a different way that government works with business, and to be much more precise about working out where government adds value in the sustainable journey. Completely. And um, you mentioned sort of like a better together sort of approach there, which made me think, do you have a sort of uh, a view on Brexit? Is that something you can discuss? Or? No, I mean, it's, it's not uh, something we, we, we take a position on. I think, you know, lots of people have got strong views. I've got only, only, only one view on Brexit, and that's to say to everybody, vote. The single most important thing for everybody is to be participant in the decision-making process and not wake up on the 24th of June and think, yeah, if I'd have been bothered to get out of my bed and cast a vote. 
My single, my single challenge to all of us is cast your vote. Okay, and, and just bringing all this back to business then finally, I wanted to ask you just quickly about leadership on sustainability, specifically the, the leadership of, of CEOs within a company, which can act potentially as enablers for sustainable change. The reason for this question is because I was speaking to, to Richard Gillies quite recently, the former sustainability director at Kingfisher, um, and he pointed out that there's often uh, like a catalyst, a leader who pushes and takes a business to a new level of sustainability, whether that was Stuart Rose at M&S or Paul Polman at Unilever, Ian Cheshire at Kingfisher. Um, you're obviously now under the, the leadership of the new CEO in, in Steve Rowe there. How important is it for, for a company, big companies, to have a sustainability-minded boss to, to drive forward a, a sustainability CSR agenda? So let me, let me offer you two, two observations on, on that. And one is just to take some of the pressure off the chief executive and put some of it on the chairman and the board. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons that M&S has had three very good chief executives in the world of Plan A, Stuart, Mark, and now Steve, is because the chairman of the board, currently Robert Swanell, and the non-execs have decided in part in appointing the right person to lead the business is somebody that shares the value of the, the business, understands what our customers want from us. So be very clear that this is not about chief execs magically turning up that perfect sustainability. This is about the right recruitment process to bring the right person in to lead an organization. That, that's number one. Mm-hmm. Having said all that, when you, the chairman of the board and the board have appointed the right chief exec, absolutely it makes a difference. I've seen it right from the beginning. Stuart Rose was absolutely passionate that Martin Spencer needed to change from the old world of CSR, corporate social responsibility, um, avoiding bad things, he drove us in those three critical months at the end of 2006 to develop Plan A. Whenever we were having a little bit of a wobble, it might be a little bit difficult. I'm not sure we can do this. Stuart absolutely held our feet to the fire and said, make sure you do it. Mark Bowen comes in and very clearly just then operationalizes it, makes sure it's owned by every business, in, uh, business unit in M&S, not just sort of a preserve in the middle of the business. And now Steve Rowe comes in with his absolute passion to put 32 million customers at the heart of the journey as well. So again, as, as director of Plan A, I can't be clearer, having a good chief exec supporting you from the very top is vital. But don't take away the pressure from the chairman and the board to appoint the right person in the first place. Interesting. And um, Okay, so last question for you then was to ask if you could just impart some, uh, some pearls of wisdom for, our, for listeners to this podcast. Um, there will obviously be a lot of sustainability professionals out there that would love to rise up their career ladder and eventually be in a position like the one you were in as a, as a director of sustainability for a business that's really sort of setting the standard when it comes to doing business better. Um, based on all of your experience, what one piece of advice would you have for a sustainability professional who really wants to drive their sustainability agenda forward and take things on to the next level within their organisation? What, what one key skill is essential nowadays? So I actually think the most important thing that happened in my career was when I woke up six, seven years ago and said, where the hell is your career going, Mike? And I said, right, I want to change a thousand companies for the better. By the time I, you know, I hang up my boots and I've retired, I will change a thousand companies for the better. Now, I can't work for a thousand. I had to work for one that had sufficient ambition that it encouraged 999 other companies to take a lead. And that's what the Marks and Spencer rule gives me the potential to do. Well, claim I've done it, give me the potential so beneath that, what do you need? The single most important skill you need is leadership skills. It's about getting alongside an organization, not lecturing or haranguing or bullying or forcing the business to do what it doesn't want to do. It's putting an arm around the shoulder of the business and say, come on, we can be better, more successful if we do this. 
we can be trusted by our customers, we can motivate our people, we can build more resilient supply chains, we can run more leaner uh, operations, we can develop purpose-led business models for the future. And that business case and the EQ and the leadership skills to get people to want to do it and own it across the organization rather than a small team in the middle constantly trying to push water up the hill is the single most important thing you'll ever do. Well, what a note to, to end on. Mike, thank you very much for your time this morning. Congratulations again on another great Plan A report and, and best of luck with a year ahead for you and your sustainability team. Thank you, Lou. Thank very you. much appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye then. Bye-bye. Always great to hear there from Mike, and it's uh, really refreshing when a sustainability report from the likes of M&S comes across the news desk, because it's a, it's a nice reminder of the great lengths that some businesses are really going to to drive the global sustainability agenda. It was quite a timely interview as well. Um, George, you spoke to another member of M&S's team just I before. I did. I spoke to uh, Kevin Weiss, who is the primary food packaging innovation lead. Ah, okay. Um, that was ahead of the uh, ED Resource Revolution Conference, which we'll be hosting in a few weeks' time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had a really positive discussion with Kevin. He spoke uh, quite refreshingly about how collaborative efforts within the packaging sector had been sort of at the heart of um, the Plan A sustainability programme. Mm. So he t- talked about all these uh, big initiatives that MS have been using, sort of um, like reducing hard-to-recycle PVC and polystyrene. Mm. And, and lots of, um, I, thought, I remember they mentioned, they mentioned a lot of this in the sustainability report actually as well, the kind of mm. their drive in the area of packaging innovation. Mm. Um, and also, yeah, this, so that story in particular, he talked a lot about Adam MacArthur Foundation, didn't That's he, as right. one collaborative So the, the big theme was uh, collaboration, um, sort of working within M&S um, to make sure that materials are used res- um, resourcefully and mm. within the supply chain as well, making sure that you get suppliers on board. Mm. And then I spoke to him and asked him what he thought would be the biggest change, what he'd like to see in the industry in five, ten years. And he said collaboration, particularly cross-sector. And he, he mentioned platforms such as Adam MacArthur Foundation, C100, mm-hmm. said how companies could follow the lead of MLS and sort of maybe companies that don't have the same resources mm. or the same information they could use these platforms for collaboration yeah it's interesting because um it's, it's quite an interesting time that we've had so many stories about collaboration coming across our desk um the theme of all of them seeming to be that we're better together when we work on sustainability on bigger issues just quite timely ahead of the brexit <laughs> on brexit isn't it when you think about kind of tackling these global issues um, and we're seeing so many initiatives now. UK are a part of some, UK aren't a part of others, but all of those initiatives are about getting everyone around the same table, getting everyone on the same page with things, and everyone being a part of the same sort of collaborative approaches mm. to, to tackling these issues. Um, anyway, now we, we do have about five or ten minutes left for this episode of Sustainable Business Covered, and that gives us some time to yeah to bring you in again here, George. Been sat there for the first few interviews very quietly, patiently. Been a busy week for you though, hasn't it? You've obviously been sat on the news desk for quite a few days in a row now, haven't you? That's right. Yeah, man in the desk. <laughs> yeah. um, it's uh, been carnage. But <laughs> yeah. I think I've just about held my own by myself. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm hoping you've been sat there drawing up a sustainability success story for us. That's right. I have my sustainability success story, okay. or the SSS, as I hope it will be known in a few weeks. We need a, we need a jingle or something, don't we? <laughs> um, okay, so this is a story from the past seven days, which will hopefully leave, leave us all feeling a bit more positive about the way some businesses are really embracing the green economy. Um, what have you got? So we're carrying on with the theme of collaboration. Um, it's a new 
cross-sector coalition that's been formed by the Forum for the Future, which uh, aims at businesses leading sort of net positive contributions. So the idea that reducing negative sustainability impacts isn't enough. You need to do more and create a net positive contribution. So we've had a whole host of companies getting on board. Um, We've had Dell, HP, Kingfisher, Mm -hmm. all um, aiming to enhance their approach to sort of innovation and um, enhance their reputation. We obviously we had the legally binding agreement there for countries, but there's been there was nothing sort of binding contributions for businesses. So Mm -hmm. it's good to see these sort of initiatives taking place along with sort of RE100. We had a whole new host of uh, companies joining oh, last yeah. week. Yeah. Uh, Interface One, I think. Mm. Um, Tetra Pak. Tetra Pak. Yeah, the other dude, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, the future is bright <laughs> yeah. for business collaboration. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's um, net positive when you mentioned that I was wondering whether or not Kingfisher were going to be one of the companies there because obviously their net positive program, which they launched quite a few years ago now, um, it's good that they're sort of opening up that opportunity for other businesses and it's great to have their expertise on board with it because it's something that they've been working towards for quite a few years. So, um, yeah, good story. It's an, an interesting project. It'll be interesting to see how that comes along as well and, and whether or not that accelerates the trajectory for those companies on their sort of carbon reduction efforts. Anyway, now it's Matt's time to shine with the Innovation Zone. The ED regulars among you will know that Matt writes a fairly regular feature for ED on the, the best green innovations of the week. It's one of my personal highlights of the week, having to read through that one and not having to read through it. I <laughs> choose to read through it. And um, yeah, so uh, hopefully you've picked out one of the green innovations from this week that you think stands out. What have you got? I have not picked out one. Uh, this week I have oh. picked out two. Um, okay. And mainly because they are both on an issue which um, people from ID leaders club if they're listening will resonate with and it's people it's this concept of behavior change and the reason i picked up two is because they're both really interesting concepts but i can only see one taking off mm-hmm. um so to start with the one that i believe will take off and i would like to start this with um i'm going to hold my hands up and say that we got an email in the office today about people leaving the windows open in the office oh, yeah. which um <laughs> you know it's good to see heineken practice what they preach with their you know with their new facilities but um i have not been doing that and i am yeah i am the phantom window opener um of Fabisham house at the moment so i will get better but obviously that's that's not good for energy consumption and and use my my defense was it was in the middle of a storm and it was extremely muggy <laughs> Um, I'm sure I wasn't the only one kind of panting out the window like a dog, but <laughs> this is the prelude to your, to yes, your innovation. Yes, this isn't the innovation. Me opening windows is not is not an innovation as far as I'm aware. Um, but an MIT startup called Ember, that's E M B R, mm-hmm. um, across the pond, they've introduced this new bracelet um, that you can manually set to kind of pump cold or warmer airways around your body. It's this idea of heating and cooling you. It's you know. It's not necessarily sustainable in that in, in that regards, but the aim from Ember is to use this to really drive energy reductions in buildings. They want to negate all need for electric fans for heating systems by eventually introducing this bracelet that automatically reads your body temperature and adjusts you to cool or heat you as you go. It's in terms of takeoff, it's it could be brilliant. They used um they used a, a big tech. Um, tech event out in Asia this week to, to highlight it to delegates and the feedback was positive so if they can negate the need for me to open windows mm. or for fa- electric fans to be fanning across the offices mm. you know the consumptions there will be will be huge mm. um, and it kind of contrasts to the second innovation which I pulled out which I think 
is a really interesting thing. Although I'm sure um, some people, especially Eileen Donnelly and her hatred for labels, will not be a, <laughs> will not be a fan of this if she's listening. And um, that's a concept from the Center um, of Biological Diversity, again in the US, who have introduced these extinction labels to food packaging. Now, we've written in the past about meat and dairy consumption in regards to climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, farming sector is a huge, huge kind of plug for um, GHG emissions. So they introduced these labels that basically tell you the emissions of, you know, a pack of bacon or um, <clears throat> the kind of methane pro- produce of some crops. And it's right. basically aimed at opening the consumer awareness of what it actually takes to, to grow and produce produce this food and aim to either make you think about eating it twice or making sure you, you don't waste it. Um, it. It adds, you know, little kind of tidbits of information about... Um, what animals are grown or like live near the near the habitats and which are at risk of you know extinction it's not quite as severe as the smoking packages where they've got like you know rank little lungs Mm -hmm. um but it's it's very kind of opening but um as eileen pointed out in a couple of podcasts ago actually yeah yeah, you know labeling and the message sustainability consumers aren't necessarily aware and won't take time Mm. to pull that out but as someone who who does read packaging on, on the food to make sure you know counting calories and making sure that I'm not eating the worst thing imaginable. It's it's something that I'm interested in, but yeah, I can't see consumers necessarily taking the time. No, yeah, it's going to be an interesting one to see whether or not that gets any actual pickup. Mm. Um, it's an interesting area, isn't it, that whether or not you can kind of, whether or not consumers actually care about the sustainability potential of a product. Um, yeah, I don't really have much more to add than that. It's, just, <laughs> it's an interesting area. Um it's it's all about kind of scalability, I think, isn't it? And whether or not, if I think if you can get the ball rolling with that sort of thing and it becomes the norm, then perhaps mm. that is something that can then be rolled out to other people. I think it's very much consumers and, you know, this is something Global Action Plan harps on about, you know, consumers, mm. you need to um, you need to make climate change resonate with the individual. Mm. And I don't think grass snakes being killed by manure, to- toxic manure, is necessarily going to change that. Mm. Mm. Okay, so there you have it. There's Matt's two uh, innovation picks of the week. The full piece will be going out later on this afternoon or, or it'll be going out, yeah, sorry, on Friday, Friday morning. So um, that just about wraps up this week's episode of Sustainable Business Covered. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Thanks again to both Matt and George. Um, Matt, enjoy your little trip to Prague. I'm sure I will, yeah. <laughs> Look forward to hearing how that goes. Um, next week on Sustainable Business Covered, we have no idea what will be on it. <laughs> now, we, we'll, we'll have the usual sustainability success story and the innovation of the week, but in terms of content and interviews, we'll have to wait and see uh, where the week takes us. Perhaps we could do, I was thinking we could do a sort of a Brexit special, something like that. But yeah, we'll have to wait and see. Um, this podcast should be available on iTunes very soon. We're still waiting for Apple to validate it, but for now, um, you're still able to download them all for free directly from the ed.net website. Anyway, that's all for this week. So uh, it's a goodbye from Matt. Bye. Goodbye from George. Bye. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.